following God in a fallen world. Following God in a fallen world, which will involve life, death, victory, hardship, mountaintop, valley below. These are all experiences of God's people throughout the ages in a fallen world. Real Christian life is hard. Following God in faith is hard. A life of faith isn't easy. It's hard. Following God is hard. What part of the Bible, Old or New Testament, would give you the idea that following God is easy? No part. That's right. No part, saints. The easy life in this world is no life at all. The easy life is to float downstream with the rest of the dead fish on the broad way to destruction. The devil doesn't bother floaters. In fact, the devil rewards the floaters to keep them satisfied on their way to eternal destruction. If it's going smashingly well for you in this world, you should be afraid. If all men applaud you and call you friend, you should be afraid. If God's enemies are not your enemies, you should be afraid. My dear brothers and sisters, we aren't floaters. By the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and His finished work on the cross alone, we are very much alive. The devil and the world system that serves him will and is opposing us. And God will allow it for our good and for His glory. There is suffering in the Christian life. After a few centuries of ease, we have become weak. We have become fragile. We have become perpetual peacetime Christians, even though in reality it has not been peacetime. But we've been living on borrowed time because our forefathers exercised faith and fought a good fight. And they established the Christian worldview in the United States of America and in the Western world as the framework and construct of our laws and society. And we've lived on that borrowed time and taken it for granted. And now there's a near universal cry for peace, peace, when there can be no peace, even though the devil's forces are clearly waging war daily. The devil and the world system that serves him will oppose us. And God will allow it for our good and his glory. There is suffering in the Christian life by God's design, like there is suffering in the Olympic runner's life by the coach's design. Like there is suffering in the Navy SEAL's life by their instructor's and trainer's design. Suffering not just for the sake of suffering, but to attain a much higher goal and glory. Our message to non-believers and believers alike, shouldn't be, come to Jesus, he'll make things better. He'll fix your marriage, he'll fix your kids, he'll make you perpetually healthy, wealthy, popular, and happy. You'll live on easy street while sitting in an easy chair, hitting the easy button to take care of any stray clouds that threaten to cover up your sunshine and disturb your fragile, circumstance-based peace. That's not our message. That's not the message of the Bible. You will not find that anywhere between those leather covers, anywhere between Genesis and Revelation. Our message isn't, come to Jesus, he'll give you your best life now. Our message is, repent of your sin and rebellion. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Die to self. Take up the cross. Make Jesus and his gospel great in the earth. Your sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Hell will forever be closed Heaven will forever be open to you and be your eternal home. The streets of this world are your mission field. They will be rough. There will be hardship, heartache, suffering, and death. There will be death. But Jesus will be with you even until the end of the age. And then you will be with him under the fullness of his love and mercy forever. This life is brief sometimes glorious and often hard. Your best life, saints, 
is yet to come. Your eternal life and life abundant is yet to come. Praise be to God. And that, friends, is what we see lived out on the pages of Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 1, read with me there. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with them, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. First point, our faith ebbs and flows. That's the reality of life in a fallen world. That's the reality of every follower of God. Throughout their life, their commitment to following God ebbs and flows. When it's flowing, all praise and glory to be God. When it's ebbing, it's you who is to blame. It's only by God's grace. It's only by God's strength. It's only in the power of the Spirit that we walk by faith, that our faith is sustained and our faith grows and our faith is victorious. Now, we are to exercise our faith. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But even when we do that, we know that it's God who is working both in us to will and to do for his good pleasure, says the Holy Scriptures. And what we see on the pages of the Old Testament, what we see in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life What we see is faith that ebbs and flows. What we see is a commitment to following God that ebbs and flows. We see them at times victorious in faith, champions in the field of battle, so to speak, or actually. And at other times we see them failing or falling or just floundering a bit. And Jacob has been floundering a bit. The Lord told him to go back, go back to Bethel, but he stalled out in Shechem. And bad things happened in Shechem. We saw that last time. Bad things happened in Shechem. He was not in the dead center of the will of God. He was not pursuing passionately the will of God, getting back to Bethel, where God had first spoken to him. And now God visits him once more in Shechem, and he says to Jacob, verse 1, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. There are times in all of our lives where God wakes us up again, where God gets a hold of us again, either just through the reading of God's word and prayer or through some life circumstance that catches your attention or even through some travesty, some tragedy that strikes And suddenly you assess yourself, your heart, your life, your sin, eternity, and you say, you know what? I need to do better. I need to press on toward the goal for which I've been called heavenward in Christ Jesus. I need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I see that this life is frail and fleeting and so often foolish. And what makes it worth living is the glory of God and the redemption of sinners and the hope of redemption, the hope of salvation. Life in this world in and of itself is not worth living. It's not. Which is why the, the rich, famous, and powerful often kill themselves. Because with all that power and all those riches and all that fame, they figure out after indulging themselves to vast extent 
that all those indulgences, all those pleasures end up empty and wanting. Oh, dear saints, may God continually in our lives of faith, in our walk with him, following him, may continually meet us providentially, meet us in his word, meet us in prayer, meet us in a worship song or a hymn that just grabs us again or grabs us for the first time in a message preached, even this message today. May God meet you today. May God speak to you today. Revive you today. Because that's what's going on here is a revival in Jacob's life. A revival in Jacob's family. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Hear me. We need revival. There's a great apostasy going on. There's a great falling away. There's fear. And fear is infectious. It's infectious. And it leads to depression. It leads to clinical depression. It leads to medications. But it started with fear. Because you let fear take the place of faith. Faith. And you let worries about this temporal world replace the realities of eternity. And so we need revival. Apostasy is everywhere. Men, women, pastors, preachers, professors are falling away everywhere in various measures. They're running. They're hiding. They're capitulating. They're going apostate. They're finding a safe place. God said to Jacob, and God says to you today, Arise, arise, and go therefore. That's what God says to you. Arise, and go therefore, and preach repentance to all the nations. Arise, and go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's the New Testament version. Here, God is building his kingdom in a people. Jacob, who's about to become Israel, who will become 12 tribes, who will become the nation from which Jesus will come. God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. God is reminding him of his faithfulness. I appeared to you. I told you I was with you. I told you I will be with you. And clearly, I have been. You have prospered, not without hardship, but you have prospered. In my care. Remember my faithfulness, O Jacob, and return to me fully. Walk with me fully. Obey me fully. Verse 2. And Jacob said to his household, I love this, immediately. God said, arise, go. And Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments, which tells you what? Jacob knew. He knew there were foreign gods amongst them. He knew there were idols that had crept into his extended family and servants. And yet he had tolerated it. Put away your foreign idols from among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Repent. Repent. And sanctify. Get sanctified. Set yourself apart unto the Lord. Verse 3. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Hold fast to that reality there. We're going to repent. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to follow him. We're going to get sanctified. We're going to follow. We're going to obey. And hear me. Why? Because, because he answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Because he has saved me. Because he is my Lord. He's my master. He's my savior. And he is faithful. He is faithful. Even when we are not. And so we are going to follow him. Hold fast 
through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to your salvation, the helmet of your salvation. You see, the devil comes with his blows. He comes with his lies. He comes with his threats. He comes with his allurements, his Turkish delight. And he would knock off or have you set off that helmet of salvation. Hold fast to that first confession of faith that was a grace of God, that God pulled it from you, that God regenerated your dead soul and compelled you to confess Christ as your Lord. Hold fast to the joy of your salvation. Who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. And know that God has been with you. God has been with you. Oh, there's hardship in all of your lives. There's hardship, there's heartache, there's disappointments. God has been with you. And know this, you don't know what you would be if God had not been with you. You don't know how vile and wicked and apostate you would be today if God had not been with you and even use those very hardships to hold you back, to subdue you, to sanctify you, to keep you humble, to keep you broken even. You don't know where you would be without the grace of God upon you. But today on the Lord's day, you're in the church of Jesus Christ. Today in the Lord's day, by the grace of God, you're in a church that's in the war. You're not some weak Christian in some weak church, cowering, hoping to get another funny story about Jesus and the apostles, hoping to get another rated R movie clip to illustrate God's holy word, hoping to get a Jesus high in the front row, hopping with your hands held up. And go back to a life of complete moral, gospel, theological compromise, doing nothing for Jesus, advancing the kingdom in no way. You're not worshiping Jesus with people all around you who are voting for and supporting, promoting everything that Jesus hates and died for on the cross. You're in a real church. Praise God. It's His grace. And I'll go a step further. If you're a child, you're in a real Christian family in a real church. Praise God for His grace. A church that's not crying peace, peace when there is no peace, but is advancing the kingdom of God in the day of war. Praise God for that. Children, adult children, young children, there's a grace of God. And if your parents aren't here and you were raised in such a church, praise God. If you're raised in any church when the gospel is preached at all, praise God, that's a profound grace. If you were raised in the United States of America where there's a biblical worldview, church or no church in your raising, praise God. At least there was a biblical worldview, a biblical construct. So remember God's faithfulness. Remember the salvation that God has so graciously bestowed upon us. We who are just like Jacob, supplanters, deceivers, sinners. In the same womb, Jacob and Esau, both wicked. And yet God set his grace and love upon Jacob. Remember his grace and his love. Let us arise and go to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God to worship him who answered me in the day of my distress has been with me in the way which I have gone. God is faithful in the midst of our hardships and trials. God never told him it would be easy. He told him he'd be with him. Verse 4, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So the terror of God was upon the cities. They lived in a time and in a place where there was no assumed safety. There was no assumption that at night you just close your door and everything's going to be okay. There was no assumption you can call 911 and the police are going to show up and protect you or call 911 and the firemen are going to show up and protect you. There was no assumption that there, there's a military force that's going to protect your borders from an invading army that's going to come to destroy you. They had none of those assurances. There was no bank for them to store their wealth in and stack it up and hand it off to their children. They carried their wealth on their backs or on their herds. 
as nomads to the desert. There was no security at all. They lived under constant threat from other nomadic peoples and from every city they passed. That city and the petty king thereof might decide he wants your stuff or your wife or your daughters or your sons for slaves. That's the world he lived in under constant threat. And that's what I said earlier. We have become weak because we've been under constant security and safety and we're, we're so taken care of. We're so pampered and we're so entertained. We are the most entertained people that's ever lived. Constant entertainment. We waste so much life and time and the devil is luring us into a sleepy, satisfied state while the world around us burns. And as long as we can have some food and have our entertainments and we don't feel like the devil's tyrants are going to interfere with that too much. It's okay. It's okay. We'll just keep retreating, keep retreating, keep retreating. And it's gotten to the point now, as long as we can keep our church doors open, okay. But hey, here's the line. We're going to keep the door open. Church at war. The door of the church is going to be open. That's not the church at war. The church at war is going, therefore, and making disciples. Literally going with feet shod of the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the church at war in the city center. That's the church at war in the open air. That's the church at war in the civic center. In the courthouse. That's the church at war on social media. Exposing evil. Speaking truth with love. Ministering God's law and God's gospel. The modern Athenian square. Verse 5, they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. We have such a weak and pathetic church today, by and large, that we're busy telling them as they hate God and revile Him, we're busy telling them how nice God is, how much God loves them, and the wonderful life God has planned for them. Of course, they want no part of the wonderful life God has planned for them because they know God, the God, the God of the Bible, has forbidden them their perversions. And forbidden them their genocide of the unborn. And that's all it takes. We're done with that God. We hate that God. All you've got to do today is go into the public square and hold the Bible up. And they say, pro-abortion. You you didn't even say anything. You didn't even open the Bible. You just held it up. But they know the God of the Bible opposes their slaughter of the unborn. All you have to do is hold the Bible up. Mention the name of Jesus. And they say, homosexual rights. You, you massage you bigot. Because they know that God forbids their perversion. It's a war against God. And we need to be found faithful in the hour of war, exposing the evil and warning them of God who is holy, 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 who is omniscient. He knows their sin who is omnipresent, he is there. His eyes are present in every place. And who is omnipotent, they will not escape his holy wrath. Hell is coming for them. Hell is coming for the Democratic Party. Hell is coming for those commie FBI agents serving as the Democratic Party's Gestapo. Hell is coming for them unless they repent. Hell is coming for the homosexual movement. Hell is coming for the mothers and fathers and purple-haired teachers perverting children and mutilating their bodies. Hell is coming for the little blonde-haired, white-skinned nurses and doctors murdering babies in Portland's black community on Martin Luther King Boulevard. We need to be messengers of God's judgment. Psalm 711, God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. We need to warn them. Revelation 21, verse 8, but the, but the cowardly, unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We need to warn them that certain judgment is coming. We need to inspire in them the terror of the Lord. Instead, we're retreating everywhere, everywhere retreating. 
because we love ourselves, because we love this present life, because we love our best life now, because we love the good opinion and the applause of men, the church is retreating. It's in a full retreat, a full capitulation. Those who haven't capitulated are by and large silent. They're not going, therefore. They're not filling their city centers up with the word of God. And if you do, then you will be a spectacle. You'll be hated, you'll be despised, you'll be marginalized and criminalized. You are the white Christian nationalist, domestic terrorist, fascists. They keep adding terms. It started with deplorable. Then they, they began to speak a little bit about homegrown domestic terrorist, white supremacist. Then they, they came up with a new term, and they love this one, white Christian nationalist. And now they've added to it fascist. And they're dead set on pinning domestic terrorists upon these fascist white Christian nationalists, which is why many are retreating. Our job is to put the terror of the Lord in them. The beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Our job is to preach the word of God, to reveal the one true God, holy, holy, holy. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So then they're ready for the good news. There is salvation through Jesus Christ. But we come with weakness disguised as meekness and love. We come with weakness and we give a weak God, like pleading and begging them, oh, please, you sinner that blasphemes me and hates me and despises me and burns my Bible and mutilates children and murders children and promotes every vile thing. Oh, please like me. Won't you like me? We got a God begging for wicked men and women to like him. Now, that kid was never liked in school. And that God will never be liked in the earth the one that begs people to like him. By the way, dead men, don't, dead men don't like God. Men and women born dead in sin and trespass hate God. That is their nature. They hate God until they're born again, until they're regenerate. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If there's any hope for our nation, if there's any hope for the Western world, if there's any hope for this planet, it's in preaching the word in season and out of season. And you might be thinking, oh, it's, it's really out of season. It's really out of season. Read your Bible. It was way out of season when they first started preaching it. Did you remember? They killed Jesus. They killed all his followers. They killed the first evangelist. It was out of season. Well, it's going out of season again. But our job is still to go there for and make disciples, preach repentance to all nations whether they like it or not. Our job is to put the fear of the Lord in them. The terror of the Lord was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The terror of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's our job. Do you want peace? Do you want prosperity? Do you want freedom? Do you want your children? Do you want your grandchildren? Do your job. Put the terror of the Lord in them. Have no fear of them. Put them in fear. What does Matthew say? I read the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them. Don't fear them. Fear God alone. That's a command of God. When you allow yourself to fear all this, you are in sin. And that sin has a price. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When you fear God alone, you're set free. You're just set free. It's such an amazing freedom. You fear God, you need fear nothing else. God is sovereign over all things. He works out history on the macro level and micro level, including your precious life, perfectly according to his will. You need fear no one else if you're a child of God. Philippians 
127, of course, says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. You stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you salvation and that from God, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. We need to be the opposite. We need to be bolder than ever. We need to be more outspoken. We need to be stronger, more courageous, not in any way terrified. The apostles had that beautiful day we call Pentecost. The Spirit of God descends in the visible form of a dove. They're filled with the Spirit. They declare the glories of God in unknown languages, this great missionary gift People are hearing the glories of God. They're they're saying, what must we do to be saved? They all get saved. They're wearing themselves out, baptizing them. They go out soon thereafter and do it again. And they get arrested and they get beaten and they get put in prison. What are we going to do now? Run, hide, soften the message, make it more palatable. No, they say, Lord, look on their threats and grant us strength and courage, and fearlessness, all do boldness. And the Lord answered that prayer, and they went and preached again and turned the world upside down. That's what we need. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. When you're not afraid, when you're not afraid in any way, when you're rather bold and strong and courageous and fearless, it is proof to them of what? Their perdition. It's real faith lived out. Oh yes, I I believe in the one true God. And by the way, so do you. You just hate him, but I pray you might come to love him. And so let me tell you more about him. He's holy and he's just. And that should terrify you because he's also omnipotent and he's coming for you. You need to repent. You need to repent, sinner. Whatever flag you're flying, homosexual, Atheist, communist, whatever sinful flag you're flying. Roman Catholic, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever idolatrous flag you're flying, you need to repent. Because the one true God is holy, holy, holy. He's just, he's omnipotent, and he's coming for you. And hell is coming. Repent. Confess Christ as Lord. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. And no matter what the world throws at us, that is our message. We're not in any way terrified. We're not in any way terrified by our adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. It's a simultaneous proof to them of their perdition and to you that you've got the real deal. You've got the real faith. You've got the Holy Spirit-empowered faith that allows you to walk on the waters of this troubled world and all its opposition to God and his Christ and his gospel. The weak, pathetic faith that so many have called the Christian faith for generations now, that's not lasting, is it? It's blown off in the wind. Churches are emptying. Pastors are quitting. They're finding other jobs. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, of course, the Great Commission All authority given to me in heaven and earth, go therefore make disciples. Verse 20, I want to focus on teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jacob, look family, look servants, God is with me. And I've not been with him as zealously as I should be. Get rid of those idols. Get sanctified. We're going to meet with God. He is with us. We're going to meet with him. He is with us. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. That little addition there, even to the end of the age. At the end of the age, it's kind of like the New Testament age. (laughs) All hell breaks loose on earth. I'm with you, even at the end of the age. Will we be with him? Or will we run? Will we hide? Will we blow off? Will we become secret agent Christians or no Christian at all? 
May God sustain us. Our faith ebbs and flows. Secondly, death will touch us all. Death will touch us all. Verse 8, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bekoth. So God calls Jacob. Jacob says, let's go. He says, let's get cleaned up. Let's repent. Let's forsake idols. Let's get rid of them. Let's go seek God in Bethel. They show up in Bethel. Deborah dies. Significant? Well, it is. The people you love are going to die. All of them. Unless you die first. And we don't like that. We don't like it so much that we live generally in a self-deception as if the people around us were going to live eternally in their present state. And that's a lie. And it's an unhealthy deception and lie in that, again, it makes us fragile. So when death strikes, we're in a position now, much like the world, where we're ready to take pills to find peace rather than trust God that he's the author of life and he's the taker of life. Rather than to respond like Job when all of his children died, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They're all going to die. Everyone you know will be dead one way or another in a hundred years or less. Some of us much sooner. What can you do about it? Proclaim God's law and God's gospel. Call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Keep the main thing the main thing. Live life in light of death. <coughs> Don't deny the reality of death or you're not going to live life correctly. You're going to get caught up emphasizing things that don't matter, spending too much time, spending away your precious life on things that don't matter, while everyone around you that you know and love and people that you should know and love but don't know are dying. And so death is a sober reality in the pages of Scripture, and I wanted to smack you in the face today because it's coming. And it will come by accident, it will come by disease, it will come by surprise, it will come in old age, it will come young, it will come middle age. It will come. It will come for your husband, it will come for your wife. It will come for your father, your mother, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents, grandchildren. Death is a reality in a fallen world. Who is this woman? Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name was called Alan Bakath. Who was this Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, to Jacob? And why was she there? Rebecca's nurse. This is his mother's nurse. Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, died. His mother's already dead. Don't forget that. His mother already died. And she died after sending him away, saying, Esau wants to kill you. Go see my brother Laban for a few days. And he never saw his mother again. She's dead, and oddly enough, without any explanation, here is Deborah in Jacob's family, traveling with Jacob, and she dies. Why is this reported, and why is she there? Because my guess is that Jacob, out of love for his mother, loved Deborah. And my guess is that Deborah was very much like a second mother to Jacob. And so he loves her. He loves her, and God took her. Hear me. If it pains you when you lose loved ones, and it should, let that compel you to thank God, not curse God. Because he gave you something so wonderful. He gave you something you did not deserve, this other human being in your life, to love you and for you to love, to, to walk in this world for a season, and that gift was so precious that the loss of it is deeply painful. That should compel you to thank God for giving you such a treasure. And don't ever forget, you didn't deserve the treasure. You don't deserve these wonderful people that love you. That you have the privilege of loving. It is a gift of God, an unmerited gift. So the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And I want you to learn that from the Word of God today and not stumble through it in the hour of death when it strikes. And you may stumble. You're human. I love you. I will have mercy. But I want the truth to strengthen you and gird you, gird you up that you're never tempted to do what Job's wife said. Curse God and die! No. No. Thank God and worship Him. For He gave you a sinner, something you did not deserve in His grace. He gave you people that you love and that loved you. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. and She was buried below Bethel. Death had already come for Jacob's mother. Now death came for a woman that was probably precious to Jacob and like a mother to him. The death of those we love is not ill treatment from the hand of God. It isn't reason or cause to question God, resent God, or think that God resents us. Death is a fact of life in a fallen world. The sooner we embrace that reality, the sooner we will be ready to embrace life fully and love those in our lives more fully. They are a precious treasure and gift from God, the only treasure you can take to heaven. And like all gifts from God, they are unmerited. We didn't earn them. The greater the pain of loss, the greater our thanksgiving should be. Forever having known the gain of having such an amazing gift. And there is, again, no greater gift in life than the people in your life who love you. When Calvin nearly died, I was reminded that I love that dear brother and that he loves you saints and he loves my family. When Joe decided to have a trip to the hospital that they call a stroke, which is, I'll put it in the category of a near-death experience, certainly a life-altering experience, the treasure that Joe is was impressed upon all of us more deeply. When our dear sister Patty was sent uh, from Friday to Monday for open heart surgery, much more serious than we had thought and urgent, and then when she nearly died a few days after that heart surgery, we realize all the more how precious our dear Patty is. Now, they were just as precious before those near-death experiences. But because we live as if everyone is going to be in this state eternally, because we so often suppress the terrible reality of death, we don't treasure the people around us as we should. May God grant that we would live in light of reality and love in light of reality and praise God for such precious gifts, the people in our lives that love us. And if you know you, right, if you look in the mirror of God's word, you know you, except for the grace of God, you know they really shouldn't love you. If your parents are alive, they're going to be dead soon. It goes really quick. We'll all be dead soon. (laughs) The good news is, if you're in Christ, this is just the beginning. It's not even really a beginning. We've got to put off this body of death to get to the beginning. So the goal is, the work is, the labor is, our focus needs to be to get those that we love into Christ, beneath His blood. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God. So first point, our faith ebbs and flows. Second point, death will touch us all repeatedly. Deborah is Rebecca's nurse. Rebecca's already dead. That's why Deborah is in Jacob's household. Third point, God is always faithful. God is always faithful. No matter what circumstances are taking place, no matter what's going on in the world or in your life, God is always faithful. Don't budge from that reality. There are many verses you could anchor yourself to. One of them I anchor myself to because it's short and it's easy for my frail mind to hold fast. 
is God is a just judge. I hold fast to that. He is just. Now, as a Christian, you can also hold to God is love. As a Christian, for you, always and only, he will be love. For you, always and only, he is only loving you. Now, he chastens those that he loves, and he's a good chastener. He's a good father. He's a holy father. But as a Christian, washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are adorned in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you will only know his love. You will never know his condemnation. Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is faithful. Verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants. After you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. This is what matters most. Are you and your loved ones in covenant relationship with God? Whatever else is going on in the world, whatever else is going on in your family, whatever else is going on in your life, right? The world Jacob lived in, rough world, fearful world, if you're going to give yourself over to fear. There are lots of real threats, constant threats. His family, broken. Sin has affected it. Sin has ripped it in half. His brother wants to kill him, or at least did. And they're still not in full family fellowship. And yet, Jacob is in a covenant relationship with God, a saving covenant relationship with God. And if we, like him, are in a saving covenant relationship with God, all of life's hardships are manageable. For we, in Christ Jesus, are more than conquerors. And life abundant is coming. Now, to some of the details here, God changes Jacob's name. He makes his name the name of the future nation that his 12 sons will be over as the 12 tribes of Israel. He changes his name. Praise God, he says that he's going to give us a name. His own name for his children. Washed in the blood of the Lamb, born again from above. His adopted children. He has a name for us as his adopted children. Verse 11, also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give you this land. It's all yours. It's all yours. All of Israel, it's all yours. Let me take it to the New Testament, to the church. It's all yours. The entire thing. The entire planet. In fact, the cosmos. As sons and daughters of God, it's all yours. That's our inheritance. Everything. Everything. Back to Israel. God gave them this land. Over and over and over and over and over and over, God says, I give you this land as an eternal covenant. I give you this land, a land, a seed, a blessing. A nation shall come forth. Kings shall come forth. Be fruitful and multiply. That too, a secondary issue, but that statement, be fruitful and multiply from Genesis to the end. Be fruitful and multiply. In seasons of fearfulness, like now, those on the left are fearing economic hardship, which they're actually creating. They're not really fearing it. They're deliberately creating it. And they're saying things like, stop having children. And in our local parks here in the Portland area, they have stop having children evangelists out, literal stop having children evangelists out, with signs and tracks and t-shirts, stop having children, because we're destroying the planet with our children. So stop having children. Human beings are the great evil on the planet. 
Uh, what a corrupt, wicked worldview. The biblical worldview is have lots of children, be fruitful and multiply. If you just drive across this state, you'll see there's plenty of land. It's just an issue of management, land management, using the resources wisely. If you'll drive across the United States, oh, wow, there is so much beautiful, usable land and space. It's ridiculous. There's a little island called Great Britain that once ruled the world. You drive across Great Britain, and on that little island, and relatively speaking, it's a little island. Don't mean to be insulting to the British. Love them. But it's a fairly little island. There is a whole lot of open space. I had the privilege of riding trains north and south from, from London all the way up to the furthermost northern reaches. And it's beautiful, but a whole lot of open space, and it's all green because it rains all the time. Plenty of open space. I've been to Africa. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to Asia. Lots of open space everywhere. I've missed Antarctica and South America. I've been to Australia. Lots and lots of open space. No one lives in the heart of that thing, but they could. They could. And so be fruitful and multiply. That's the command of God. God haters hate children. Don't have children. Christians are to be fruitful, they're to multiply, they're to subdue the earth. God is always faithful. All right, we've got to bring this thing down. We're going to stop here. We're going to pick up next time because you know what? These life lessons we're learning with Jacob, they are too precious to speed through. They really are. These are vital life lessons, and we need them in this very day we're living through more than ever. And they are painful, but I'd rather have you suffer this pain Right? I'd rather you run hard around the track on practice days and, and get the trophy on the real days of testing and hardship that are to come. And so we'll run hard again next Lord's Day and work our lungs a bit and our faith a bit and grow a bit stronger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious treasure called Holy Scripture. We thank you, Father, for how it reveals your grace upon sinners made saints in the past whose faith you upheld through many trials, through many hardships, through mountaintops and valleys below, through abundant life seemingly in this world and much death and hardship. We thank you, Father, for your grace upon Jacob, the supplanter. And we thank you for your grace upon our own wretched souls. Hold us fast, Lord, to your Son, our Savior, our King, and may we make his name great in this generation. May we advance his kingdom in this world as your servants, following God, wherever you command us to go. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.